Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing chemistry, the defence industry and things that go bang. My guest is Professor Jackie Akavan, head of the Centre for Defence Chemistry at Cranfield University and an expert in explosives chemistry. Professor Akavan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So other than sounding like a huge amount of fun, I don't really know anything about explosives chemistry. So what are some of the key scientific principles behind it and some of the important research challenges? Okay, well, explosives can be divided into three areas. You have um, pyrotechnics, and they're like the fireworks that sort of give you a display or maybe some sound. Then you have propellants, and they're the explosives that propel maybe a rocket, a missile, or maybe a, a bullet through a gun barrel. And another type of explosives are the ones that detonate, and they're the ones that cause a lot of damage. So there's those three sort of classes. And all of these three classes, what they're made up of is normally a fuel, something that burns, and an oxidizer, because you have to supply oxygen to the fuel. So there's two components to this, and you generally mix them together. However, nowadays, if we want a really uh, explosive, high-performing explosive, we can synthesize a molecule where it has a fuel, the carbons and the hydrogens, and they actually chemically link to the oxygen, normally via nitrogen, but it actually is chemically linked. So they're called molecular explosives. So they're the ones that have a bit more power because you don't have to mix things together. They actually synthesize as an explosive molecule. So that's just generally the basics of an explosive, very simple terms, I must say. Yes. So we understand now what an explosive is and the fact that there are different ways that you can make them for different purposes uh, and therefore research is making them more effective in whatever those purposes are. Obvious question, presumably this area of research within universities comes with pretty intense safety protocols. Well, yes. Um, first of all, we're regulated by the Health and Safety Executive. We hold an explosive license to manufacture and store. Probably the only university in the UK that actually has an on-site license. So we have magazines to store our explosives. And we have laboratories where we can actually synthesize and mix and formulate and test more importantly, that we have to prove to the HSC that our people are competent, that they actually know what they're doing. Not only do they have the knowledge, they have the on-the-job, the training. So we have a very strict training program and um, keep updating them as well to make sure that if they haven't done that job, say, for a few years, we we have a look, make sure they're still competent. So that's quite an important part of it. So it's it's not only the explosive license, you see, people carrying out the task. And the laboratories, you know, some laboratories have to have anti-static flooring or maybe conducting flooring. Depends upon what we're doing. So we do have to have some special facilities sometimes to manufacture. And also we might have to do it remotely. It might be if we go in a, a bit larger capacity, maybe up to half a kilo, we can't just do it by hand so we have a facility where we actually um, we stay in a laboratory then the actual manufacturer is done in a heavily reinforced environment just in case because it's research just in case we have an incident and the people are protected so yes it's, it's highly regulated and I say it's by the HSE. And you've described the fact that, that Cranfield is probably unique in this position. And you're one of the founders of this Centre of Excellence in Energetic Materials at Cranfield. So tell us a little bit more about that and, and some of its aims. 
Okay, this is this is called short. It's called COEM, so it's Center of Excellence uh, for Energetic Materials. And I can say probably about five six years ago in the U UK, we were having a well problem is that a lot of us were getting old and we're losing expertise, and we noticed that the uh, skills were were shrinking, and it's very hard to attract new people into this industry because it's not like IT, cyber, finance. This is you know, hands-on experimental chemistry. So um, we all got together, the people in the UK, sort of the experts, and we set up at Cranfield this centre of excellence. And the whole idea is that the the government, they, they fund it. It's by um, government organisations, one of them being AWE, the Atomic Weapons Establishment, and DSTL and, um, do you know, many government organisations. And they, they fund literally people to run it. So a... a an operations director and the administrators but the whole thing is to pull together people and and champion the essential national capability in energetic materials so it's a UK sovereign capability it's where we've all got together and it's bottom up rather than top down because nobody at the top were looking at us we said look we need a we need somebody to to glue us all together so Cohen was that glue and then when we managed to get the funding then Cohen started to expand and then started to get like what's called technical groups where there's a group making synthesis a group doing formulations a group doing computer modeling and we we get the UK experts together and then they actually look at you know where are the gaps, where are the skills, what we're going to do about it, where should we get funding? So though Cohen hasn't got any money, it has a lot of influence over policy and where the country is going to go. And and you know, we we know each other. It's a very small industry, so we we know how to contact each other. So Cohen is growing. Well, it's, it's got a database now where people can register. It's, it's obviously on the internet and it's trying to work out how many people we've got out there, what are the skills, what do we need, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years time, how, how are we going to grow? So so that's that's the, that's that's what co and it has all the training. You know, if people want to be trained, it will help people with their training, help people with their CPD. So it, it's just a focus. And another important thing that co actually did was that um, – since I've been in this industry a long, long time, and uh, we've never, in this country, we never held an international conference, UK, never, in basic science. So we, and this is through COVID, we held our first one in 2022. It should have been earlier, but COVID sort of bugged that whole thing up. So it happened in July 2022 in London, and then it was quite successful a lot of international people a lot of americans came over and so it's it's every two years so the next one is in 2024 up in edinburgh and we're hoping it's going to grow and it's supported by royal society of chemistry phds early careers and it's a way again hey look you know we we're here we're doing fundamental science what are you doing there what are you doing in america what are you what are you doing overseas and so hopefully it will grow in 2024 again it's all on the internet and and we get the proceedings it's published by website of chemistry peer-reviewed papers from the conference so it's quite in a high level conference so we're very proud and that's done through coem and just to help my understanding here the, the kind of people you're coordinating this is a a mixture of people from the academic research community and from industry and from the sort of the government side is that right yes you're absolutely right you see the government are sort of pushing coim but you need industry because they're the ones who are doing the manufacture and you need academia because we're doing the training and we're doing the research 
we can't manage without the three. So yes, yeah, so the government is a driving force, but then we're bringing industry on, on board. So the COIM, the conference is for all three. The conference is fundamental science. So probably done at sort of low levels, innovative blue sky science, unclassified. So we all can learn from each other. We're not hidden behind these sort of shields, all unclassified, basic science. But yes, industry can pick it up. And, and they some obviously they fund a lot of the research. And so does the government fund the research. So it's just it's showcasing what we can do. And to the international that we are not behind, but obviously we can learn from them and they can learn from us as well. So I wanted to dive into a little bit about the industry side. Uh, and obviously, a lot of the industry is the defence industry, a key partner in all of this. And, and tell me a little bit how universities like Cranfield will work with the defence industry. Now, you've just said some of this is blue skies and unclassified, but other parts won't be, I'm sure. So how does it work? What kind of safeguards and security are involved in this kind of relationship? Okay, so first of all, we will doing the same thing. We're all in the same direction. So the defence, us, we're all trying to do the best for the nation. That's the most important thing. So we share things. So a good example is that um, where I work, which we're based on, that's Cranford University, I'm based on the Defence Academy of United Kingdom. And um, staff from AWE literally come on our site and we work together. We do training together, we manufacture together, we learn from them, they learn from us, we're bringing their new staff up, sometimes we have new staff, so it's it's literally collaborative, because we can't work independently, we don't have enough people in this area, so we have to work together, so we share facilities, even training we, we run master's courses, but then we bring in external lecturers. They come and teach on our courses because they're practitioners. I often go and teach inside organizations, defense industry. I'm teaching inside to help them as well. So again, it's very much collaboration. A lot of the defense industries, they fund PhD studentships. So this is a way of getting the young ones in. So they, they will um, give us a project or a joint project. We'll go outside and find a student, an undergraduate. And that's another area is the research students, PhD students, master students projects. Obviously, industry and defense will say to us, we've got some good projects and, we, and we'll find the students to work with them on their project. So it's it's applied project. It's something, there's something at the end. Somebody wants it. Somebody actually wants something they're actually doing. And although it's sometimes it can be blue skies, but it generally there's a purpose to it. And so we're always we're always talking to industry. We want to know what do they want? How can we help? So we're learning from each other. One important thing is that, again, I talk about competence, is that when, when we're working together, I have to assure, say, AWE, that our staff are competent. They have to assure me that the people sending to us are also competent so that we, we can work together. And we, we have like a training program. So it works really, really well. And it's not only AWE, DS2 and other defence organisations, we welcome them to come uh, to Cranfield and work alongside. And we have placements. Often DS2 will give us one of their members of staff for nine months. They'll come and work and we do a rotation. And sometimes one of our member staff will go and work with them. So again, we do placements too. So again, all managed through COEM. So it's, it's a really good organisation. So more generally, working in the defence space, and this is actually true of, of industry beyond defence, sometimes you hear the concerns that as an academic, what you need to advance your career 
is publication in key journals and, and openness of research. Uh, and in, 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 in a business environment, that's actually not what you want. And particularly in a defense environment, you can see that there are very good reasons. Sometimes that's not what you want. So um, it may be less so in this specific area, which is about Blue Skies research, but more, more generally, is, is that a tension? And how is that kind of tension resolved so that academics actually do feel that they've got a, a career that they can aspire to? Okay, and so exactly this question. So when we, we get research contracts, both us and the industry and the defence industries, we all want to publish. Believe you me, we all want to showcase what we're doing. We both want to publish. So in a very careful way, we have projects that sort of unclassify. So we that's where the PhD students and the MSc students come in because their work is in the open. And so it's not the application. It's the basic science that we can publish. I do agree with you. There's other research contracts that we have, probably where a bit high level, our research fellows and academics, they will do the research. And yeah, sometimes we can't publish that, obviously, because we're protecting the sovereign capability. But we always try, even though we might have a project that's sort of a higher classification, we always try to say to them, okay, we do that, but is there a side project that we can do where it's basic science that we can that we can publish? Now, we've never had a problem with this. They've always said, yes, we'd love to publish with you, get our names on papers, joint publications. So we can publish and we do publish and, and we've never had a tension at all between it. We know how to work together and we both know what each other needs and where to draw the line. We do. So I, I don't think it's a tension at all, actually. It works, it works really, really well. Well, I wanted to ask you about another potential tension, which you may tell me is not a tension either. So you've been talking about UK sovereign capability, but earlier in our conversation, you were also talking about international collaboration. And are there limits to which some of what you need needs to be within the UK and other times when it's fully open? What What's the kind of uh, boundaries there? Okay, so we do collaborate, Australia, South Africa, South America, America, Europe, there is research collaborations. It's it's mainly due, the, the research contracts we get is blue skies research. A very good example is 3D printing. Uh, 3D printing, and that's something we, we do a lot of, and that's overseas funding. But although we get it from overseas, we're all learning from it because we're learning how to do it. And we're doing it for a company, but the knowledge we're gaining, then we can educate our people. Because the whole idea is research-led education. I work for university. My job is to educate. And my job is to learn from the research, to pass it on to our students. That's what it's... I'm not, we're not there to make money. We're there to learn, be at the forefront of technology, but pass it on to the students. So, and it's a, it's a share. So what we learn from the UK, you know, we know we don't give the secrets away, but we, we understand the basic science. And um, yes, there's certain countries that um, we don't work with and they won't work with us. So we know that it, it works two ways, but but normally we don't have a problem uh, at all. And, and that, you know, we're very open with everybody. They know who we work with. We've been, because we, it needs to be transparent because we, we want to learn. And I know these other countries also want to learn. So there's never, ever been a tension at all. Mm. So we focused on defence industry for obvious reasons, but that's not the only people that are going to want, you know, some of the technology that comes behind explosive chemistry. So sort of outside of, of defence, 
what are some of the industries, what are some of the areas of society and, and future projects that you can see working? Okay, well, we do do a lot of work outside defence. That's not just um, our main one. So um, UK Space Programme, and this is a really interesting one because they need um, propulsion to get their rockets up and even their satellites. Now, we we haven't managed to get into this industry. We do a lot of work on propellants, pyrotechnics, and we need and we're waiting for them to come to us. I think they must be buying overseas at the moment. And but but you the space program is one area where I know they're looking for green, environmentally f- sort of friendly type materials that don't um, when they burn don't give off bad exhaust. Let's say that. So that's that's one area. Another area, airbags in cars. There's a lot of that's a propellant, and a lot of work uh, is been done in that. Also fireworks, pyrotechnics, uh, display. A lot of imports are coming into this country from China, and obviously, um, I, I sit on a lot of expert committees in the UK, and um, I'm one of them. I'm the expert in looking at fire. What comes into this country? Are they safe? Are they secure? That sort of thing. So that's another area. You said a challenge, and the hardest, the hardest challenge is detection. Um, this is our airports. We still, as you probably know, when we go to the airport, you have your your water bottles and you have all the other bottles and your creams and we do not we've, we've worked years on detection of explosives with the when we're in the eu and now we're still working on it the challenge is is detection of vapors parts per billion and liquids um so that we don't we can just put me now you know baggage and we don't have to take things out now you can do it and and we've worked in lots of ways but again if they want to do it remotely if i swab it quite easy I can detect it but they they don't want to do that they just want to you know put your bag through the x-ray and out it comes the other side and and um, at the moment that offset is not so easy to detect what's inside that liquid so that is a challenge and because that'd be brilliant for us if we could just go through airports and not only airports the ports the ferry ports as well it's the same thing so um a lot of detection we've we've been doing work for many many years in this area so Yes, there's there's two sides to this. And is there a technical solution on the horizon, or is this just just horrendously complicated? It we thought we had one. The it it's um, offset uh, surface enhanced Raman. Anyway, it's it's a, it's a it's a laser beam a little bit away from the um, the liquid, and it goes through the liquid and excites the liquid, and then it can measure what's coming off. But the more the more you develop it. The, the clever chemists, they can, they think, ah, oh, this is what they use. So they can change things. So we always, we sort of, we're trying to go one step. Then, then the, I say the terrorists, whoever they, they, so it's interesting, but yes, there, there are things coming, but of course it's one of those, it's all protected obviously by IPR and that sort of thing. But that is the major thing is, um, I mean, we can detect it, but at the moment we just give our bottles and then yeah. they can just swab it. As we yeah. do. I mean, we're so used to it, I suppose. I don't know why I'm saying we're trying to offset it, but it'd be, be brilliant. But big wagon cars going through ferry ports again, they yeah. you know, they swab us. Do you remember the steering wheels and swab the things? Again, they would like to just you drive through and they'd be able to detect the vapour, but yeah. that's not so easy. Yeah. No, understood. Well, there you go. There's a research challenge to, to keep it you is. going. Let me move you away from research a little bit to talk about teaching. I mean, you've been quite passionate about the fact that you're trying to educate the new, the, the next generation. You obviously love what you do. I mean, is the, I mean, I think I know the obvious answer to this, but but is this an area you would encourage people to come into? 
Oh yes. I, when I when I got my degree, I'm a chemist. I was at Southampton University, and my PhD was in polymer chemist chemistry. And when you in normal universities, the last thing they ever teach you is about energetics or explosives, because I don't blame them because it's so dangerous, and they don't know the protocols to handle them. So when I got this job at Cranfield, I knew nothing about explosives. And I, I was a polymer chemist, so I, I learned slowly from my peers. And so it's a beautiful area to come into. It's pure chemistry, but it's not only chemists. We need physicists. We need um, material scientists, computer modelers. We need um, artificial intelligence, mach machine learning, environmentalists, biologists. It's, it, chemistry is one part, but we need a lot of scientists in this area because there's it's more than just making it. It's all the detonics, the modeling. I mean, it, it's such a complicated area to be in. But yes, it's a it's a beautiful area. Today, I would say that it's a very progressive area now because there's a lot of investment by the government in this area because they're trying to get more people in so that we don't lose our expertise. So at last, they are investing. Since I've been here, it's the first time in my life for the past one, two years, it's looking good that mm. the government says, okay, I think world politics, what's going on has actually prompted government, no, we need to boost this industry a bit and help them get new people in and help and retain them. Not only come into mm. the industry, keep them because otherwise, why would they, they won't, they don't stay. So you said in your own experience that you uh, were only taught explosive chemistry right towards the end of your time for obvious reasons. Do you think that the way chemistry is taught at UK universities is preparing graduates for the skills that they're needed? Are there different ways that we need to change the teaching of chemistry over, uh, going forward? No, it's perfect. Because when they come to us... No, <laughs> That's the first time us, anyone's ever told me. No, it no, is. it's all fantastic. Right, as far okay. as it's basic fundamental chemistry, so the chemists come out, whether they're synthetic chemists, organic, inorganic, physical chemists, they have to have the basic understanding that's brilliant for us because that's the basic level. Then we'll take them and then we'll just introduce them to slightly different chemistry. They'll understand it because they, they got the basics. And then we say, okay, you have that. Now this is how you make it an explosive. And then we, we train them, teach them and the difference is, and they'll get it, but they need those basic understanding of chemistry. So when I did chemistry, we learned the fundamentals and that's important. So when a chemist comes to us, they're safe. They know how to work in a lab. They know how to handle chemicals. They 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 know you know they are competent. Look, I mean these are experimentalists, not not modeler. You know, a, a, a modeler chemist is useless to us. We want somebody in the lab. You know, it's quite easy on a computer to model an explosive and and powerful, but you've got to go make it. Doesn't mean mm. you can make it. So yeah, we need experimental chemists, and a lot of universities they do that. You know, they have labs, they have excellent facilities. So I've got no problem with chemists. It's just come trouble is is attracting them because the chemists will go into pharmaceuticals or they'll go into um a lot of chemists are very good at finance actually so they'll go into the finance industries or they'll change they'll change industries so it's it's how how can we track them how can we show them what a lovely lovely area it is i don't know can't answer that question <laughs> i guess one question that follows from that is do we need to train more chemists yes um Yes, I think we do, actually, because if we're losing our chemists to other industries and we're not picking them up, yes, you're probably are right. I think 
chemistry, there's probably, you probably don't get so much money paid to be a chemist as you do in computers or cyber, that area. They get far more money. So when the chemists come out, um, no wonder they change. And um, yes, we do. These are experimentalist chemists, the ones who actually go in the lab and do the work. Yes, we, we do. And it'd be lovely if we could. I have to say, if I had my time again, it sounds so much fun. Um, we're coming towards the end of our time at the podcast. I want to ask you one more question. What do you think the big challenges are that that you are going to be working on over the next three, four, five years? Well, this is quite an easy question for me because we stopped manufacturing explosives in 2005 in this country. We buy everything in. So the country now decided we need to start manufacturing. So the big challenge now, we it's a clean sheet of paper, is, okay, we're going to start with zero. So now let's look at new ways of manufacturing, cleaner ways, using the raw ingredients that are maybe come from this country rather than buying it overseas. So we're going to start with what we've got in this country, what precursors do we have, a cleaner, quicker way of manufacturing, a safer way. While well, making a big pot, which we used to do, let's make it continuous. So get it in, get it out, make it in smaller quantities, make it smarter. Now we 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 have that capability now because we've closed everything. So we've got to build new manufacturing. So we are heavily I said about 3D printing is one, but there's many other ways. We're heavily involved in that research to start as a setup to synthesize, formulate, feel everything with explosives and and robotics that's another area ai robotics machine learning can we use that to manufacture explosives so we're moving into 21st century which is brilliant and we're going to take this country forward so that is today's challenge is um where we're going to make it how are we going to make it and what what explosives do we need you know do we need a vast array no we just need ones that what we need either for um as i say commercial or maybe defense type explosives but that's that's today's challenge really interesting and we'll have to see over the next few years how that capability develops and maybe come back in five years and tell us uh, tell oh, us all about it i'll be um, smiling i hope so anyway i say oh we're already there fantastic that's the end of our time but uh, professor jackie ackerman thank you very much my pleasure. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Jackie Ackerman, head of the Centre for Defence Chemistry at Cranfield University. Information about the Foundation for Science and Technology, including all our events, blogs, journals, and all previous editions of this podcast can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>